I want to talk to you about Sunday school. There once was a Sunday school teacher, and if you've ever been in Sunday school, you've probably been there maybe, but if you've taught Sunday school, you know that you never know what kind of answer you're going to get. And there was a Sunday school teacher, and he was in there teaching the children, and he asked him, he goes, how does someone get saved? Like, how do you get to heaven? And he asked him a question. He said, like, let's, what if I sold my car? What if I sold my house? I had a garage sale and sold everything. And I took all my money and I gave it to the church. Would that get me to heaven? And all the kids go, no. And he's like, okay, okay. Now my, my teaching is actually taking root here. We're getting somewhere. He goes, okay, children, what if I cleaned the church and, and mowed the yard and kept everything nice and tidy? And would that, would that get me to heaven? And they go, no. And he's like, okay, we're, now we're cooking. He says, what if I'm kind to all people and animals? And what if we obey our mommies and daddies? Does that get us into heaven? They go, no. And the, the teacher sits back and he's like, man, I... These children have a theological sophistication I was not prepared for. Uh, we have done a really good job equipping them with the theology they need as they move forward in the kingdom of God. And he goes, okay, children, how do I get to heaven? It was a hushed yet sacred silence over the Sunday school class. And the kid from the back goes, you got to be dead. <laughs> and that is true. It is true. It's not the popular answer, but it's... It's one of the all of the aboves, kind of, you know. <laughs> We're going to talk about this question, how do I get to heaven? It's an important question, right? Some of you are here today, this is your first time back in church, and who knows how long, or you're joining us live online, or maybe you're on the podcast. You're like, well, that is a good question. Uh, I would say it's an important question. Well, you're in luck because Jesus actually teaches about this, and someone asks him point blank, how do I get to heaven? And his answer was, you know, like, you have to be dead. He has something to say about it today for us. And it's in Luke chapter 10. It's called the Good Samaritan. We're, we're studying Jesus' parables. Here's the challenge with parables. Many of you have heard the Good Samaritan. You know the Good Samaritan. And when I'm reading the Word of God, anytime I approach a parable or, or the Word of God, and I think I know what it's telling me, then I'm already, I'm already off. And one thing that I do with my children before we read or they read the Bible is, that, is I teach them to say, Holy Spirit, reveal truth to me. God, speak to me about your nature and through your word. And so as we look at this, the Good Samaritan parable, let's, let's be open to what God would tell us from this story that might be new, okay? John 10, verse 25. One day a religious, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. To what? Come on, 10. You've had coffee. You've had breakfast. To what, Jesus? To to test Jesus. That's the motive. He stands up to test Jesus by asking him the question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? How do I get saved? This is what he's asking. This is the question. Now, this, it comes from somebody called an expert in the religious law, which in their culture means Bible expert. It's also, they're known as lawyers. They can be known as that. Not lawyers like we know them. These are biblical lawyers because they have the entire Tanakh the entire Old Testament, memorized, word for word. Now, there were no verses and chapters, and so, but, but, but what they could do is, is you could just turn to somewhere and start reading a verse, and he could finish it for you. They had to know the law. They had to have it memorized, and they know what to, to do. Listen, he is a lawyer in the Bible, an expert in the law. And he already has an opinion on what he asked Jesus. He's not standing up to say, Jesus, I really am seeking your wisdom. He's standing up to test Jesus. He's hoping to trap Jesus. Their goal, the religious elites, is to discredit Jesus. And they start with his opening question, hey, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, what does the law of Moses say? 
Like, what does the law say? How do you read it? And this is so Jesus. So often in this culture, but also in who he is, when they ask Jesus a question, he asks them a question right back. Hey, well, what does the law say? And how, do you, how do you read it? And so this man who's trying to trap Jesus, he's given the floor now, and you have to see the drama in this moment. Jesus is teaching to many people of all walks of life. It, it often talks about how there's notorious sinners there. There's people there who are far from God. There's people there who are seeking God. There's people there who just want miracles and just want food and some, some magic show from Jesus. There's people there who are religious elite. They're all there, and in the middle of it, this man stands up and asks Jesus a question. All attention is now on what they're saying. And Jesus turns it back to him. What does the word say? How do you read it? What does it say to you? How do you get to heaven? You know the Bible. What do you think? And the lawyer answered, verse 27, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this man hits a grand slam. He quotes two different places from the Bible, but he doesn't just quote any place. He quotes the places. It's called the Shema. It's an ancient sacred prayer that they would pray every morning and night. Jesus included would pray this every morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, love people as yourself. Now, if you've been around the Orchard of All, you might, this might sound familiar to you. This is where we get our vision, our mission, love God and love people. We have t-shirts with it on there. I mean, this religious expert, he would fit right in. He probably had a t-shirt under his tunic, you know, like love God, love people. That's what it says. And Jesus applauds him. Verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Like, good job. You got it. And I wonder if Jesus, Jesus knows he's being tested. He's the master teacher. He knows what's going on. So he says, great job. Continue on. Now, Jesus lets him know, like, you, you want eternal life? Well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love people as yourself. But the religious expert, he's not happy with this because he didn't show up with, with a question for wisdom. He shows up with an agenda. And so he wants to discredit and trap Jesus, so he's not quite done. He says this in 29. But the Bible expert wanted to justify his what? His actions. Notice he didn't want to justify his answer. He didn't have to justify his answer. Jesus already said that was good. He wants to justify his actions. He wants to justify who he is. He wants to justify his behavior. He's there with all the sinners and all these people who are far from God, and he wants, he wants to have it be known that he is one of those who's getting to heaven. He wants Jesus to admit publicly that he, an expert in the law, and his priests, his religious elite, listen, they know it, and they're living it, and they're doing it right. And here in front of all the people, for Jesus to go, well, you are right. You, you are one of those people. You're obviously religious and you obviously are devoted and you're living it right and you will get it. See, this man's looking to score a point for himself and his religious elite. Listen, they are tired of Jesus' teaching. Jesus has this teaching about some liberal God who loves people. I mean, about a God who loves people who aren't even behaving right. He loves sons who flee and go off and squander money. I mean, this, this, this God Jesus is talking about seems to have a lot of love for a lot of people. And they want Jesus to answer correctly. Because he, by now, they've seen Jesus feed over 10,000 people. They've seen him do amazing things. And not just godly, righteous people, but like those people. And they actually saw a sinful woman sob as she washed his feet and, and asked for his forgiveness and blessing. I mean, they, they've seen him heal the unclean. They've seen him touch the lepers. They've seen him love the unlovable. 
They've seen, him treat, they've seen him compassionately treat the religious homeless, the culturally marginalized, and the spiritually far from God with grace and love. You see, Jesus dares to drink with sinners. It tells us that. He got a reputation for that. In fact, he shares a table. He eats with the dregs of society. He eats with those that are far from God, shares a table with them. And these religious elite, they know that while they and Jesus, they, they both agree that we should love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as ourselves. they know that Jesus and them probably have a very different opinion about who that would be to love. So they're looking to trap him here. They're looking to discredit him here. They're tired of him calling and loving all these people who obviously aren't living it right. These people need to clean up before they come get really clean. And Jesus, is, he, he, he says, who, who, who is the neighbor? That was this man's question. Who's my neighbor? You know what he's looking for? He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for a loophole here. So the question, the first question was he asked, he goes, how do I get to heaven? The second question is, oh, who's my neighbor? He asked this question and he sits back. Like, let's let Jesus go. He's going to answer. He's going to start answering this question, and he's going to trap himself. But Jesus doesn't respond with a straightforward answer. He responds, so Jesus. In fact, the guy goes, okay, who's my neighbor? Next verse. In reply to that question, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, talk about a right turn, right? He starts telling a story, a parable. Who's my neighbor? Well, let's start this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus mentions a place that the listening audience would have all known about. It'd be like me if we're all here uh, in this area. I would mention Highway 82 near Aspen. We'd all, we kind of know the area, right? We know that place. Uh, some of you are, are very intimate with it twice a day for hours. So these people, as they're sitting listening to Jesus, they know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that drops 1,700 feet down an elevation. It's called the Jericho Road, and here's a short video we have from it. I want you to look at what this road looks like because we always read this parable and we think of this wide road. Go ahead and play it behind me. We think of this, this wide road road that, um, that there's lots of room. But honestly, this is, uh, I mean, that, that's part of the road right there. And so, so as, they're, as they're walking, as they're thinking of this fairly narrow road, Jesus tells them about this story and, and these images come to their mind because they've probably likely walked that road before. A man was walking down the narrow road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, and they left him half dead. I mean, what a story. Uh, this wouldn't have caused gasps so from the audience. Oftentimes, Jesus will tell a parable, and he'll get to a part of it, and they'll be like, oh, no, this is not one of those points. Like this road, these things would have happened. A man was traveling, but we find out this man was attacked brutally. Not, not like, I mean, he was left for dead. His clothes gone. He was robbed. Everything of value gone. And he's left there for dead. Now, we have to remember the video we watched. He's discarded on, the, on this narrow road. We always view it as this wide road. And, and so he's off in the ditch somewhere. But, but, but what we have here, a man who's bloody, bruised, moaning, most likely, beaten, almost dead there on that narrow road. So, it's at this point that someone comes upon the scene in this parable Jesus is teaching, and he sees the man who's bleeding. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man, the one who's bleeding, and he passed by on the other side of the road. Now, the audience would have been a little bit uncomfortable at this development. 
As you see, a priest who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho during this time would have likely have finished his temple duties and was returning home. This, in their culture, is a holy man. He he is highly esteemed. He is very wealthy. It says he passed by on the other side of the road. And some, actually, there were some some theologians who think it was, was a joke by Jesus because there's not much room. And the man's laying somewhere in the road. And so you can imagine him on the cliff wall trying to get around this man who's like, you know, reaching out to him. He's just trying to look away, trying to get past this bloody person, get, 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 get away from him. Went as far away as he could, out of the way, as the road would allow him, to get away from this person who's needing, who's bloody, who's beaten. Now, the religious lawyer who asked the question and who's getting this story, he would have wondered, along with all of his uh, his, his posse, the religious elites, <laughs> where's Jesus going? It's a very easy question, very easy answer. He's telling us a story. We have a priest. On the other hand, the lawyer in the, who's hearing the story, he can relate. He relates to a priest, you know? The priest and the expert in the law, they're both a symbol of religion. The priest in the story and the man asking the question, they both know the right answers. Love God, love people. The priest passes by, but yet here comes another in verse 32. It says, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man who was beaten, he passed on the other side as well. Now we have a third character. We have the man who was beaten, we have a priest, and now we have a Levite. And a Levite is an honored relative from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, generations of honor. They know the religious duties and they have honor above some of the other tribes of Israel. In fact, the lawyer who was asking about This question to Jesus likely is from the tribe of Levi. So we have a priest, an expert in the word, and now we have a a Levite who would be an expert in the law of Moses. And both of them walk past this man who's in need. And for the Bible lawyer talking to Jesus, he would associate himself with both the priest and the Levite. And he's starting to feel a bit trapped, like he's dabbing his forehead. As everybody's, the whole crowd has stopped. They're all watching. They're under that Middle Eastern sun. They're outside. And he's feeling trapped because he has his debate skills. He has his question and answer about, you know, the word and the, but this story, <laughs> this isn't in the Old Testament. You know, you don't have, you have the New Testament. He's like, what do I go? Where's he going with this? And where do I go with this? Now we, we have a priest and a Levite that pass this man by. And now in the Jewish tradition of this time, in a story, the third example would have sewed it up quite nicely. So they're all expecting and wondering, who is the one to come? Who's going to be? I mean, the lawyer in, who's talking to Jesus probably hopes it's him. And then Jesus goes, and then you come across the man. What do you do? And he gets a chance to, to interject himself in the story and kind of win the day, right? Who's it going to be? Jesus will surely sew up this nice and tidy, right? It's the third example. But in the next example, in the next sentence, jaws drop and other jaws clench. They can't imagine what Jesus is saying here. And it's shock and anger because Jesus takes this story too far. Jesus says in verse 33, But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity. Now, I don't have enough time to speak to you about the Samaritan versus Hebrew history. But I can tell you that in all Israel, there is no other race or type of people at this time who were despised by the Hebrews as much as the Samaritans. And the roots of this run generationally back deep, hundreds and hundreds of years. The Samaritans are viewed as half-breeds and religiously reprehensible. In fact, in John 8, 
Jesus makes the priests so infuriated, so angry, guess what they call him? They call him a Samaritan. It's a derogatory term in their society. It's a, person, it's a people to be looked down upon because of where they were born, how they were born, and how they chose to live their life by their lifestyle. And I just want to say that humanity, it, we continue to perpetuate this. You see, we have groups of people in our culture who are judged by where they were born, how they were born, or the way they've chosen to live their life. And chances are you, based on where you're from, how you were born, or how you live your life, are despised by someone somewhere. Just let that sink in and comfort you today. You know, we can, we can turn on a TV, TV and, and just flip from cable news network to cable news network and, and hear new narratives about who the Samaritans are of this day. Those people and them and those. Those who are involved in these things, those who are involved in these things, those who vote this way, those who vote that way, both sides have them. And our culture pits everybody against everybody, polarizing everything. It's bad guy versus bad guy. And in the end, we all lose. We get this, we, we see this, but before we think for a second that we have walked in their ancient shoes, we have no modern era issue that runs as deep as the one Jesus is touching on here when he talks about Hebrews and Samaritans. Again, this is hundreds of years old, and the roots are generational. And for that reason, it's hard for me to help us grasp just how, how they would have felt about the Samaritan in the story without being completely offensive. So those listening to Jesus, their distaste of the Samaritan, and hearing this in the story would have taken them aback. It's not shallow. This is contempt. This is deep ingrained racism and open religious and lifestyle hostility. In fact, what's funny is we call this story the Good Samaritan, right? If you would have called it that in the time of Jesus, they would have laughed at the oxymoron you've just talked about. They, they would, we don't understand what, how they would have felt about the quote, Good Samaritan, so to read this story, I want you to, maybe perhaps you take the most loathsome, despised, far from God you can think of, and maybe that begins to touch on what they're experiencing as they hear this story there. So once again, in the midst of a parable, Jesus is unveiling some truths about the kingdom of God that were shocking to people's culture, society, and religion. So what's he revealing? We find that Jesus doesn't just interject a Samaritan who has pity, it goes farther than that. He makes him the hero. Verse 34. The Samaritan going over to the man who was beaten, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine at his own expense and bandaged them. He put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he, he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs any higher, I'll pay you the next time I'm coming through town. In a shocking twist, he not only revives the man, helps the man, he takes him to an inn, he gets some room and board, but he says, out of great sacrifice to his own self, I will cover whatever expenses there are to get this man redeemed, refreshed, back on his feet. I'll be back. I'll be back someday, and I'll cover whatever expenses this man's debt has. This is sacrificial giving on this man's behalf. The least likely person in their culture comes in like a hero and he does the thing that is celebrated. He does the thing that the powerful and the elite in the story did not do. And with that, Jesus turns away from the slack-jawed religious lawyer and the silent jaw-clenched crowd. He, he, he looks around, he turns back to that lawyer and he asks one question. 
that lawyer who's been grilling him, he has one question. So Jesus says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? This is so masterful. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus did not answer his question. And this is huge because we say, love God and love people. Yet if I, am, if I immediately ask, which people? Then I've already missed the heart of God. Love God, love people. Well, well which, which people? I've already missed it. If I'm trying to figure out who my neighbor is, then you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to find out where to draw the line. Where do I draw the line for who gets my compassion, my grace, my mercy, my help? Like I give people that I like and agree with all kinds. I'll defend them at the water cooler. But, but who, 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 love God, love people. Where do I draw the line of that grace and love? If we begin to ask, well, which people? Well, who's my neighbor? We're looking for a line. And remember this teacher of the law, it tells us he was looking to justify himself by finding out which people. See, you don't define who your neighbor is. You simply define yourself as a neighbor. That's God's kingdom. You don't go around asking, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You just define yourself as a neighbor to whoever you encounter. Instead of trying to discern which people do I love, simply define yourself as someone who loves people. No asterisks. The expert knew all the head knowledge in the world. He knew it all when it came to love God and love people. He had it. It was such a tidy, nice, neat church answer that he gave Jesus. But he wanted to know which people. Which people? He wanted some asterisks. He wanted Jesus to give him some, some, some wiggle room in that. He wanted the qualifications. See, see, many of us, and we're just like this, unfortunately, we have a sin hierarchy. There's like a pyramid of sin, right? Yeah, I mean, you know those people that are up there really doing it, professionals. But then there's, in fact, as Christians, oftentimes, when I, if I were to sit down with you and say, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing morally? Our mind would immediately go to comparing how we're doing compared to other people. Well, I'm doing better than those people, but I'm not quite doing as good as them. You see, you see we fall into this, the comparison, the hierarchy of sin and lifestyle, the pyramid scheme of religion. Which people get the love? Which people get the blessing? So who is my neighbor? It implies that there's some non-neighbors out there. It implies that there's some people out there who shouldn't get the love. It's almost as if we're waiting for Jesus to go, love God, love people, and then give us the wink. Certain people. You know the ones. You guys know. You know the ones. See, that, that, that's called a religious grading system. A religious star chart. That unfortunately... Jesus doesn't have for us. This expert in the Bible gets confronted with something that we need to digest in our own spiritual life today. Are there select groups of people who, based on their lifestyle choices, you would choose not to love so much? I might say love God, love people. But given a tangible moment to help out that person from the other news network channel, <laughs> good luck. Are there hand-picked categories of people that their sins are ranked in your heart based on their color, creed, lifestyle, sin, or voting record? 
Is there a certain group of people that you just don't care for? You're, period. Are there people who claim certain orientations, connections, creeds, genders, identities that you are not so sure if that's who God would have you love? Are there political party or personalities that you can't think of without anger, let alone love God, love people? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, perhaps there are people in our life who we would move to the far side of the road away from. Perhaps there's people in our life who we move away from even now. There are people who are outside of our comfort zones of love and help. People who live a certain way, vote a certain way, look a certain way that we don't want to engage in. It is too far outside of our comfort zone. It is too outside of our little nice and tidy world, even religious world, to help. These are questions we should ask ourselves because Jesus asked them of us. People have asked me so many times, like, um, how do we allow certain people into the church? And I was like, well, we allowed you in it. I mean, there was room for you and me. <laughs> I mean, if there's not room for them, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, like how, they, they say, how do you allow people in here who do, and they insert some sin that they, on the pyramid, they've gone, this one's, this one's way up there. How do, you, how do you let those people who do that thing in here? I go, and then, and, then, and then, what do you do with them? That's what they ask me. And, and, and like they don't believe me when I say that there's room for everyone. Or the elders, we are, we are all together in leadership of love God and love people, all people. Or when Jesus, who was known, repeatedly it says, that he was known for hanging out and being friends with notorious sinners, lifestyle degenerates, spiritual fakers, and religious judgmental people. They were all around him all the time looking for his teaching. He was surrounded by people who just wanted a meal, who just wanted a magic trick, who just wanted a healing. But the question, how are those people who are out there far from God, guess what, they act like they're far from God. How do you treat them when they want to come in here? What do you do about them? I believe this parable is, is an answer to that in so many ways. You see, the doors of the orchard are open to the sinner, open to the saint, open to the Samaritan, open to the religious experts, the people of any color and creed and background, lifestyle, no matter how you vote, any past and any present. And, and again, we don't care how you identify out there, but when you come into contact with the orchard, we pray you identify more and more with Jesus. He's the one that does the great work of changing identity. He's the one that does the, the redemptive work that we want to be done. Jesus' brother James said this in Acts 15, verse 19. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for those that are far from God, who are turning to God, to come near. Like, I don't want people out in the lobby saying, so how do you vote? Oh, there's a church that would love to have you down the street. Now, now give us your top five sins. Oh, yeah, we're full today. You see, the, the good Samaritan didn't stop and go like, hey, before I help you, how did you vote? What do you, what's your opinion on the issues? No. We should allow the sinful seeker, we should allow the judgmental Bible expert and everybody in between because both of those sides need to come near to Jesus and be forgiven. Whether you come here and you are far from God or whether you come here and you think you're good with God, the orchard church is common ground because of the Son of God and no other reason. It is equal footing at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. 
We don't have a sin scoreboard. We don't have a pyramid sin hierarchy where some people are, you know, they got more penance to pay. We need the cross. We all need Jesus. If you've come to a place in your life where you believe in Jesus as your Savior and you, you follow him, then it is your opportunity. No, it, it's your responsibility to go forth from this place and live a life that illuminates him, that loves and helps those who are far from God, no matter what they believe, that they would come to believe in him and he would do his work in them. That's what we're asked to do. No sin is too great. No wandering is too far for the heart and the love of God. And therefore, we as a church, we want to welcome any and all, any and all who want to come in and find new life and identify with Jesus Christ. Do, so there's always the question, do you have to agree with their lifestyle? Do you have to agree with people's circumstances? Do you have to agree with their behavior and decisions? Absolutely not. You do not have to approve of someone's behavior to love them as God has asked you to love them. You don't have to endorse their lifestyle to love them as God has asked you to love them. In this parable, the good Samaritan didn't stop and ask for the man's credentials and sins. He helped him. He loved him. Verse 36, Jesus said, which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law, he's just trapped there. He goes, you can almost hear the gritted teeth. The one who had mercy on him. You want to know how deep, deep this, this hatred of Samaritans goes? He couldn't even say the name. He didn't say the Samaritan. He goes, the one. Who was the neighbor? The one who had mercy. And Jesus looked at him and said, yeah, now go and do the same. Talk about a spiritual hand grenade. Go and be like a Samaritan. The priest passed by, the Levite passed by. Go, do the same as the Samaritan in the story did. The religious man, he showed up and he had these questions for Jesus. He wanted to pontificate about the principles of religious living and loving God and, and loving certain people. But Jesus turned it, he turned it into a lesson. He took it not about a principle and made it into practice. Go and do likewise. Go and be like that. So as you go, go forth, this is not something for us to leave and, and discuss the merits of neighborliness. This isn't for us to go and see where we put the line of who our neighbor is. This is for us to go forth and love God and love people, no asterisks. And when you, cross, when you come across anyone, someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's in need of God, that's where you are. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand because you are at hand. You're right there. What happened here was shocking to the religious people. But it's beautiful to anybody who's in need. It's a parable, honestly, we rarely see in our day and age and, and I, I just want to, I, I found a modern version of it a little bit. It's, it's a video about a man named Steve Harvey. He's a, he's a celebrity in our nation. And uh, he's a famous comedian and actor. It says his net worth is around $160 million. He was in the middle of a, a television show about his birthday, and they had some surprises for him. And I just want to see a little bit of Good Samaritan, what it looks like when it translates into our world, into our life. So let's roll the video with the volume up, please. This one is a surprise. Okay, I said no surprises. Sorry? That's what you're saying to me, Alex? Sorry? Okay, this is a surprise. Calling in via... This one is a surprise. Okay, I said no surprises. Sorry? That's what you're saying to me, Alex? Sorry? Okay, this is a surprise calling in 
via satellite from Orlando. Let's see who it is. Hi, Steve. This is Rich List from Orlando, Florida, and I called you to wish you a happy birthday and ask you one question. Do you still love me, baby? <laughs> I'm waiting for my answer, buddy. Hey, man. I love you, man. Uh, I love you too, man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you want to say hi to your girlfriend? Who, Becky there? Yeah? Hey, man. Uh... <laughs> say hi. Hey, Becky. Hi, Steve. Jesus. <laughs> we love you, buddy. Uh, these people. We wish you the best happy birthday. I was uh, 26 years old, man. I was struggling. Mm. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have nothing. And these people owned the furniture store in Cleveland. And uh, they took me in and gave me my first contract with my little carpet cleaning company. When I became a comedian at 27, I didn't have money to travel. They gave me an account at their travel agency. And man, I ran up a bill like $11,000 just trying to travel and make it. Them people right there are. You know, man, they helped me out. Hey, man, I, I got money now, Rich. You got money? <laughs> Matter of fact, hey, Rich. I'm going to send a yeah. plane to pick up you and Becky. I'm going to fly y'all to you Chicago it, for the show. I've been looking for you for years, man. Yeah. Let's <laughs> get down, you boys. <laughs> That's good. All right. Have a great birthday, Steve. Have a great birthday. Thank you. I, he goes on to talk how they changed his life. Just a small picture. Just a small picture. Took somebody's life. Loved him. He said, I ran 11000 And the man said, whatever it costs, I'll be back. I'll pay it. I believe we're still called to be good Samaritans to people. So how do we reclaim this? Well, first of all, we have to know Jesus. Not religiously, but personally. Not like the priest who said, I I'm saved because I do good. And not like the, the lawyer, I'm good because I'm not as bad as those people. We need to not just have the head knowledge, love God and love people, but the heart knowledge of knowing Jesus to be like him. And for knowing those that follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it starts with one thing. Gratitude. Now you might be wondering, gratitude for what? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. I saw gratitude on Steve Harvey's face there. A humility, and here's why. I have to remember that I wasn't always called to be the good Samaritan. You see, there was a time in my life when I was needy, spiritually. I was spiritually bankrupt. I was on my journey, much like you, you were, traveling through life. I had tried it all, but I couldn't get my soul the help it needed. And on that path of life, on that journey of life, what happened to me happened to you. The world and sin ambushed me. 
mercilessly attacked me, beat me, and robbed me of my innocence. Perhaps it was abuse, perhaps it was just sin, but it left me in the ditch suffering from my decisions and those decisions of those around me. You see, you and I were both beaten people spiritually and in life through sin. Beaten by our sin, beaten spiritually, and left for dead on this journey of life. And we, uh, we had hoped that religion would save us. I did. I tried them. That religion would come and help my soul. But when religion arrived, it found me beaten and broken. Its answers were like this. Well, clean yourself up. Religion told me to stop acting beaten. It told me to stop acting lost. It told me to, to pay some penance. Religion told me to do some good works and to, to try to earn my way back onto the road and to be a good person. And as I reached out for religion, it crossed the path as far as it could from me and my neediness. And it left me as hope, more hopeless than I was before. And then came the law of the Bible, the thou shalt nots. You know what that gave me? It gave me a, a religion of sin management. But I'm just gonna try to manage my sin. That's, that, that's what I'm gonna try to do. I'm going to do good and I'm going to earn my salvation. But then the law showed where I was wrecked and needy. And I, I needed a cure for my condition. You see, good works and good deeds, they hugged the cliff wall, avoiding me as much as they could and left me exhausted trying to earn my way into goodness. I was lost in my sin. My past mistakes, the things that ruined my life were obvious. The vices that I was stuck in, my bondage was obvious. I needed help. I needed rescue. And then someone approached me, a foreigner. The least likely expected person in the story. He came, and although I was shocked at first, he offered me help. He tenderly bent down, he gave me a meal of bread, he gave me a meal of wine. He washed my wounds, he, he bound my broken heart and my broken body. In our time together, he began to heal my soul in a way that no religion and no law had ever done. And he didn't just save me and leave me. No, he carried me to a warm place. And he gave me over to a, a gathering of redemptive people who had also met him where I could recover and grow strong. And he opened his bag before he left and he gave me resources and gifts that I'd never seen before. Things that I couldn't earn on my own. Heavenly supplies that I'd never had access to in my life. And then with love in his face, he held my face. And he gave me a promise. He said, I'm gonna be back again someday. And as you heal and as you grow and as you go on your journey forward on the path, I want you to go forth and I want you to tell people what you have experienced here today. I want you to tell people about me. Don't bury this. Pass it on. Do for others what I have done unto you. You see, Jesus was our good Samaritan. Jesus was our good Samaritan. And the beauty of this verse is, you see, when you remember that you were once beaten and left and Jesus, he came along and healed you and picked you up and redeemed you, then when you're on the journey, you can't have the attitude of the priest and the Levite of looking down on somebody because you've been there. And there is no human beneath your help. Love God. Love people. Which people? The people God loves, all people. See, Jesus is our good Samaritan. And he asks us to go forward. We, the former ditch dwellers, to go forward and live a life of love. To find those in need and help them. We have a mission. We have meaning. We have a powerful message. And we have a world outside of these walls 
who needs a powerful Savior, Jesus. And we carry with us the light to illuminate him to a world in need. Who's my neighbor? I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to be the neighbor to anyone. What kind of person should I love? I'm just going to be someone who loves people, period. Orchard, today we are challenged once again to go forth and take Jesus at his word and be the people he's asked us to be. And I have no, I've come to know one thing about our church. We are just bold and courageous enough to do that. So as we leave here today, there are people that you will encounter who need the love of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the light of Jesus. And you're the one to give it to them. If you're in this place and we, as we go into worship and you're, you, you, uh, you don't know yet know Jesus as your savior, you're, you're here checking things out and you might not know him yet and you want to have, you have some questions or you want to pray to receive him and begin that journey, I'm going to be up here with my wife, Amy. I'm going to have some of the elders over here up front. We'll have some more of our people out there in back. Please come talk to us for any prayer, prayer need you may have. We want to pray for you. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus, the outsider, the foreigner, the unexpected one who came into our story and found us. I pray, Father, that you would continue to find those far from you, even in the earshot of my voice today, and bring them to your redemption and your love. And help us to be those people, to all the, those others that need us, that we could be the one for all those ones out there.